Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, where is Ontario on paid sick leave? Canadian forces coming to help Nova Scotia and Ontario, and do what? India tops 200,000 dead. Could it have been prevented? And new regulation to the Internet, all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about COVID-19 and where we are, and specifically in regard to uh, the paid sick, de- uh, sick leave plan. Again, we were hoping at this time to have uh, Monty McNaughton on and, and get some more in- information there, but clearly there's something going on at this point, and there'll be a news conference coming up uh, a little later on this afternoon. Let's bring in Meyer Siamati. I had it right so many times before I went on the air. Meyer, I'm terribly sorry. Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, co- a coordinator at Ryerson University's Young Workers' Rights Hub, and is with us now. Meyer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well as can be, and uh, very happy to be uh, joining you and pinch hitting for the minister. So uh, we uh, obviously uh, were hoping to get a little bit more information on this earlier, but now it appears to be a news conference later on, which, of course, we'll be covering. Uh, obviously, the, the information that came out earlier or later yesterday, uh, Ontario had proposed to the federal government that they would top up, double, I guess, what they were offering, so the payments would be up to $1,000. However, wanted the feds to operate it and, and use that template. Uh, your thoughts on all of this, Meyer, was that a good idea? Was that passing the buck? Where And obviously the feds turned that down. Your thoughts on all of that? Well, I guess the overwhelming thought is, uh, boy, this is a sad, tragic, and um, also infuriating situation. You know, we've known for close to a year now how important and crucial paid sick days are uh, to... to le uh level the curve and and stem the spread of uh, of of covid and yet here we are a year later um not much uh coming from the provincial government and and their proposal of the other day is uh totally wrong-headed and misguided uh you, you know the one thing we know is that the current federal program while well-intentioned is completely flawed and failed for a whole variety of reasons we could go into. Um, it doesn't meet the needs of uh, workers who get up in the morning and think, you know what, I'm not feeling that great, I really should be staying home from work, but decide not to stay home from work because that federal program is just totally inadequate and inaccessible to meet their par- their particular needs. So, after a year of of uh, uh, recommendations and advice from doctors, from from uh, uh, local boards of health, urging the provincial government to act and take ownership of this, what do they do? They they latch themselves onto a failed and inadequate program. So, you know, really, it, it it's it's uh, um, it's horrible. Uh, I think where we're at now, and hopefully that message has gotten through to the provincial government, and and a better initiative will be coming this afternoon. So, why would we be still operating a program that is still so failed? That's a re- that's a really good question, and I I think the answer is because because only two of ten provinces, Quebec and PEI, have stepped up and offered an alternative. At least it's something. But you know the latest figures were something you know showed something like 
only 15% of the funds the federal government had allocated have so far been applied for and, and distributed. Now, that should tell you something. It should tell you there's something, uh, you know, clearly there's a need for paid sick days, but that program isn't delivering it for, for, all, for all kinds of reasons. Um, it doesn't cover many of the circumstances under which workers would want to take a day or, or, or more off, off of work. You don't get the, if you're approved, and it's unclear when you apply that you're going to get approved, but if you do get approved, you then have to wait weeks in order for the funds to come. And that's for for workers who are living paycheck to paycheck and, and, and you know, who, who just don't have... Can you imagine this? The luxury of saying, I'm not going to go in to work today because I can wait three weeks, four weeks to get what could be half of my, my typical pay, pay, uh, uh, pay uh, which is all the amount that is provided in that program. It, it's it's you know, well-intentioned, but totally inadequate. And, 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 you know, the provincial governments, all of them, but especially Ontario, which promised the best system coming in in all of North America less than a week ago, needs to step up and make it work. So as you mentioned, Meyer, the money is sitting in that uh, account, that federal account. Nobody's jumping on board uh, on it, and, and you have obviously just given us your thoughts on that. So why not solve that problem rather than creating another one? Because the money's already sitting there. So, again, why would we start something new rather than try to make what is there? And obviously, you know, we, we know what the complaints are. So yeah. why, why not fix that? You know, I'm not sure passing this to the province. If the, if the feds can't do a good job on this, uh, they have more resources. How can the provinces? Well, th- th- that's, that's a very good question. And, and I think the answer is that... Uh, the fix would take too long. The amount of money that is allocated in that program per applicant is limited and is capped. Initially, it was for two weeks. Now it's four weeks uh, of, 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 of time off work. But at what it's capped at, which is $450 a week, that's less than, that's less than minimum wage for, for, for a full-time worker. So uh, uh, there is not enough money in that program to meet all of the need that would be there if people, if, firstly, if they expanded the eligibility. So they'd have to expand the eligibility. They'd have to expand the amount of, of funds that each applying worker could get. There's not enough money for that. And it's the provinces that are avoiding their prime constitutional requirement to take ownership of this. And let's be honest, to require employers to pony up and accept some of the financial responsibility for this. This can't all be on, on, on government in a context when, you know, we know the damage that has been done by COVID economically and to jobs. But now we also know the windfall that COVID has brought to all kinds of companies, to all kinds of CEOs. We need an emergency tax regime that bring, that requires employers who, who have who are financially stable to cover the cost themselves and for provincial governments 
to take increased revenue from, let's be honest, from employers who have garnered super profits out of COVID to put more of their earnings into a fund that can be allocated to struggling businesses so they can pay for their workers. The federal program is is an inadequate program for 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 applicants and for a requirement that business take some ownership and responsibility of, of making these payments. So why not give that money that is sitting there doing nothing and nobody seems to want to claim because it's impossible to do so and just incredibly inefficient, why not provide that to the province to help? Because in the end, the provinces, and correct me if I'm wrong, the provinces are going to have to bridge the gap because the federal program is not sufficient. You know, that, 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 that's a fair question. I mean, the, the, the federal government, I think, was, was pressed and, and I would say to their credit, introduced a flawed, lousy program because the provinces weren't doing anything. And it's a provincial jurisdiction and responsibility. To say now that, oh, well, because the province, because the federal government stepped in to bail out Ontario and seven other provinces, therefore only the federal funds will be used for this. The federal government has, has been providing all kinds of financial support to Canadians individually and to businesses and to organizations, and good on them for doing that. But I think it's really mistaken to say, oh, well, since they have this this one particular program that covers some sick days, which is which we know has all kinds of problems with it, let, let's only work with that and those funds. Let's let the provinces off the hook and let's let employers off the hook. That's not good enough. But, uh, Meyer, uh, the Ontario government often offered to double this. They offered to 500 from, uh, roughly 500 from right. the feds, and then they were going to throw in another 500. So right. they were going to cover that cost to double this, right. which I think most would say would be probably adequate. That's fine. Uh, and, and then that's not happening. So again, I'm not sure why we're building something really good because something the federal government uh, tried to do didn't work out, and especially when there's funds sitting there that could be used to help this. So, uh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah uh, so uh, you know, uh, a, a few things on that. You know, the, the, whatever funds uh, uh, get get established may well. Uh, uh, by by provinces, the the federal program either is going to continue for its limited purposes, and it has a limited purpose. It doesn't cover people for one day off or two days off. You have to be off for the majority of a week. And, you know, this whole process of, of knowing that it exists, applying for it, keeping your fingers crossed and hoping that... that but you would have to do that at the provincial level, would you not? No, no, this is like, you, you know, no, I'm, no, I'm not no, sure no, how, no, I'm not no, sure no, how many, I understand what you're saying, yeah. Myron, I'll let you finish here, but yeah. uh, at the end of the day, are we creating more work or less work through this? Well, uh, uh, this is the pro- provincial ownership of this through employers would be much, much, much more seamless. Basically, what would happen is the employer, the, the employer would continue to pay the employee. Like, there's nothing to apply for. It's a guaranteed sick day uh, regime up to a certain amount whatever they set the amount of and and the only thing that happens is the employer keeps paying the worker now for a lot of employers 
that they all are already doing that because it's a unionized collective agreement requirement. Others are voluntarily doing it, and some are not doing anything at all. And some of the ones that are not doing anything at all are have been raking in record profits, and others are struggling and really can't afford to do it. So you've got mm-hmm. to use a scalpel here to develop a program. Are there many, let me ask you this, Meyer, yeah. are, are there many, you know, I'm trying to figure out who this is, uh, you, you know, we know who needs it, those that right. obviously want to take time off uh, to to get tested or, or do whatever it is that they have to do, get the shot. Right. Um, uh, but, but again, we're seeing like Canada Post, Amazon, those large situations right. where we're seeing these large outbreaks are covering sick days. So who is not covering sick days for their employees? That's a very good question. And, and, and the short answer is that we've got, uh, uh, you know, the stats show that about 50 to 55% of employees uh, are not covered by paid sick days. So it's, it's a huge cross-section. And one can imagine that it's, you know, mostly in medium and smaller sized uh, firms which tend to be the non can they see you know you're talking about large companies here Meyer but can these you know like the big companies could afford it they're doing it the Canada Post no, no, uh, well, the Amazons well, and such can these smaller companies afford to do that well firstly uh, uh, I would question whether all of the big companies are doing it you know even even, even who's not Amazon I understand Amazon is as is Canada Post well, Amazon late in the day decided once their place got shut down that they would cover the the uh, payment for for the workers who are not being brought into work. But that's twelve months after uh, a pandemic when a lot of their employees have gotten sick. Some have passed away. A Brampton uh, a bus driver who drove mm-hmm. on that route taking workers to that plant got COVID and died. Uh, you know, Amazon does not have a generic policy of no problem. We're covering everyone's, every, everyone's paid sick days. Once stuff hit the fan and they were shut down and they came under a lot of scrutiny, then, you know, you could say to their credit, they announced that any worker who was not able to come into work because of the shutdown would continue to be paid. But that's different than a regular regime of paid sick days, which they do not have. So, Again, I'd rather have Amazon pay that bill than the taxpayer. Absolutely, 100%. And, and I'd also much rather have Amazon as a good corporate citizen that yeah. they claim to be and want to be. They should pay. They should be charged and paying a COVID surtax on their record, record profits. Uh, Meyer Simiatiki has been with us, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, Coordinator of Ryerson University's Young Workers' Rights Hub. Uh, great conversation, Meyer. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, Scott, happy to be with you, and let's hope for better news coming this afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bringing you up to date, we're up to about 3,480 cases, uh, new cases in Ontario. Although they continue to climb, uh, doctors are saying the good news is that appears uh, to be leveling out, but still 
great concerns in the ICU and just the exhausted medical staff uh, that have been dealing with this. We, we all know what it's been like for us to go through this over the past, uh, however long, well over a year now. Uh, you can imagine what it is like if you are, in fact, at ground zero. Uh, we can only imagine. Uh, and obviously the province talking about or uh, announcing today also that they will uh, transfer patients as needed in order to make room uh, at more uh, hospitals and, uh, and, and getting elderly out into uh, long-term care homes. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, we're still seeing cases go up, but uh, modeling suggesting or, or uh, uh, graphs suggesting that this is starting to level off. Are you seeing that? Are we, are we seeing these lockdowns starting to take a hold? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's very important that we start by saying that, that the lockdown measures that have been put into place are paying dividends. And we're seeing the effect of that in the reduction in number, hopefully, of case over time in the near future. However, the main concern still remains around our ICU units. I mean, I, I think it's very nice and kind of you to have started this by saying, you know, that our healthcare workers have been under a lot of stress, Scott, and, and we can't undermine uh, the heroic efforts of everybody on the front line. They're literally like soldiers going to a war zone um, who are fighting this pandemic now for more than a year. And, you know, I, I think we will spend years trying to think about a way to rebuild our health infrastructure. Uh, at the forefront of that is how do we actually say gratitude and thanks to the healthcare workers who are really every day in and out trying to combat this pandemic. And, and I don't think they get enough credit for the work that they're doing. Uh, and they never seem to be complaining about it. They seem to be just going with their daily tasks and, uh, you know, with just the best spirit possible. Here's hoping that this does draw a little bit more attention to the healthcare industry. And, uh, and, you know, it's obvious with this pandemic that we've neglected this, especially in long-term care. We're hearing that report coming out today. Uh, and I guess no surprise there. But uh, do, you, do you think this will, and even right to the point, doctor, of, of even inspiring young people to get into this profession? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from a, as, as a former clinician myself, is that I can tell you that people who get into the healthcare workforce go into it as a vocation. They have a sort of an understanding of the role and what it takes to sacrifice sometimes your own mental and physical health for the betterment of other people, the population health. And so, you know, we're, they're not in denial about what they're signing up for. However, nobody really signed up for a pandemic. And so yeah. that changes the whole infrastructure. And I hope that moving forward that, you know, we really think about better ways, not just to take care of healthcare workers, but imagine their families. You know, mm. you know, if you're you're married to somebody who works in the healthcare system, imagine that burden of that person day in and day out coming home, you know, worried about infecting their family members, but just coping with the stress of being having to deal with the pandemic and the effect it will take on the family members. So I hope that moving forward, you will be thinking about creative policies or effective policies that really get taking care of our healthcare workers the same way that we're always thinking about taking care of our war, war veterans and, and soldiers that go off to war. Um, Canadian forces being deployed to Nova Scotia, Ontario, and also being offered to Alberta. Is the role of these uh, of the military different now than it was the first time they came in, for example, in Quebec? Yes, it is. I mean, it's the first time that, as, as, as far as I know, it's the first time yeah. that Canada is utilizing their military in a way that we've never seen before. You know, the military is usually a last reserve. You know, it's they're, they're saved for things that, uh, you know, it's very difficult to actually activate the military to do civilian things, which is in this case, you know, taking care of our healthcare system and, and filling in the gaps. 
they're meant to be a last minute resort. So the fact that we're using them is it signals to everybody who's listening to us today that, you know, our health system is uh, fragile and it is at, under a lot of stress. The fact that we're recruiting not just military, but we're also, you know, Newfoundland physicians and, and doctors are coming to help. People are stepping up signals a lot that, you know, our healthcare system is, is definitely, you know, drowning in a sense and, and trying to just catch breath. Uh, and be able to fill the gaps where needed. I mean, our IC units are at full capacity, and they're looking at creative ways to make more space in our hospitals. Uh, we're starting to see uh, places of business close as a result of this. Canada Post uh, shutting down a shift. Uh, Amazon fam- uh, fulfillment centers have have uh, seen outbreaks uh, as well. Um, are we doing enough to 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 shut these places down quick enough, especially the well, larger places like the Amazons and the Canada Posts? This brings up a bigger conversation, Scott, which is the one that's on everybody's mind lately, paid sick leave. I mean, it's not just about closing those down those big manufacturers. It's about what happens when one of them needs to one of those workers at those big uh, sites, whether it's Amazon or others, requires to get a vaccine or a test for COVID-19, but doesn't can't go because they can't afford to miss a day of work. And this is the conversation about paid sick leave that seems to be, you know, on everybody's mind all over the news, rightly so. I think a lot of us experts are calling on the government to really, you know, figure uh, their stuff out. I mean, the time is up. I mean, literally, the time is up on this conversation and the data and the evidence supports it that, you know, we have a high number of cases that are coming out of this big sites, whether it's Amazon or other companies. We're not, I'm not trying to signal Amazon out. And that the, the call there is that how do we make sure that those workers get paid uh, leave so that they can actually make sure that the case numbers don't go high in the province? You know, I'm about, as we talk more about, and obviously this is not your expertise, uh, line of expertise, it's obviously in the medical field, but, uh, you know, I can see how this affects smaller companies, but I have a hard time understanding how the places like the Amazons of the world that you're making billions of dollars during all of this are, are even putting their employees in the scenario. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm really happy you brought this up, Scott. This is a, essentially finger pointing. What's happening right now is that you know, the provincial government is pointing the finger on big businesses like Amazon and others who have billions of dollars and can't support their workers. The, those businesses are telling you that, you know, we provide paid sick leave to, to the extent that we can, given our, our infrastructure and our business model. Then you have the provincial government pointing the f- finger at the federal government saying, well, you know, we're happy to contribute to your uh, pay, paid leave if, you know, you allow us to up that benefit. And we heard from the federal government yesterday and today, and they said, no, that, yeah. you know, this is a provincial thing and you need to figure it out. What essentially happened was the provincial government got caught uh, currently, Ontario government got caught that, you know, you're not doing enough with paid sick leave. They realized this in much respect. We heard Doug Ford make that emotional speech saying that, you know, they're going to put a plan together now. I mean, this is a complete 360 change from what they had before. Um, but then the NDP pulled the fast move on them and they put forward a, a bill that they can't accept because it's, you know, they accept, they look like they lost the battle yeah. on this and they agreed to the opposition. So this is politics. Um, but however, we must remind everybody that politics cannot supersede people's health. And this is what that's at core here. What's at stake? What about supply, uh, Ahmad? Like we're, we're seeing uh, 1.9 million coming in this week, and we're promised that we're going to see 2 million a week for the month of, of May and such, and as we get into uh, to spring. Is that going to make uh, an impact, especially when we're seeing the uptake in, in vaccination with those 40-plus? 
the more supply we have, the better it is. However, I will raise a very important concern that we're hearing all over the province. The booking sites need to be reformed. People are frustrated that it, they can't figure out which site to go on to book. And honestly, I tell you, I live in a hot spot in Toronto. It's harder to get our vaccine uh, appointment, the way the system is built up, than to get our concert tickets for, I don't know, Beyonce or Michael Jackson, who is still alive. <laughs> like, it's incredibly frustrating. I speak to mothers and parents and and people in my neighborhood in Regent Park, which is an underserved area, and, and they're all frustrated that, like, why is it so difficult to book a slot? And what seems to be difficult to understand is that, you know, we're in Canada where technology is available. Why can't we build a model where people can get an appointment now for when the yeah. supply is available? So people are not frantically wasting their days continuously going on the site trying to book. They should, we should be able to know that, you know, we're projecting this X amount in the next couple of months, have people go on websites, with the caveat that that might change depending on supply, but here is your date when you can book. I think that will ease the anxiety on everybody and really reduce the stress level in the community. You know, you bring up another valid point and another uh, weak link in the chain that we've seen through this pandemic, and that is uh, technology within government services. I mean, we hear reports of of government services using fax machines and such like this. And, you know, this isn't a glamorous thing to spend money on to update. But obviously, in a pandemic, you know, we're uh, we're behind. I think governments are behind private companies and what they're doing in this aspect or this respect. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it still baffles me well today why there is no centralized, in Ontario, a centralized booking uh, service for vaccines. That is, there is no excuse for that. People should not be have to figure out and Google where they need to go book a vaccine. That should have been one centralized site where everybody can go on and they can book, uh, depending on where they live, uh, the closest area for them to get vaccinated. It's just, it, it's really from a policy perspective, you know, if you're trying to find solutions for this pandemic, we're offering it on, you know, all the experts are offering this advice on different platforms. And it doesn't sound like a lot of that advice is being taken into account. Equ- equitable access to vaccine is the core issue here. And we need to make sure that people who are, you know, can have access to the vaccine because supply is there are able to book those appointments. Do you think we're going to see with these vaccines coming in in the next uh, several weeks and such uh, to the point where we can just open up facilities and uh, like we've seen in the United States and other uh, jurisdictions where people come in and they just you don't have to go through all this stuff to get to get a shot. I mean, this all comes down to lack of supply, obviously. But do you think we'll be getting enough in so we can just go to those areas and do this? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, we have to also give credit that we are doing better than we did a week yeah. or two ago. Like we're vaccinating more and more people. This is great news for everybody. If you're looking for that hope on the horizon, here it is. Like more and more of your loved ones are getting vaccinated. When we raise issues, it's to get things better. It's not to say that it's, you know, a complete disaster right now. It's just to say that there, is a, there was a better way to do this that we should have done. Let's learn from that. Let's make sure that this doesn't happen again. And as we project more and more supply of the vaccine, can we not pause for a second and think, okay, let's figure out this vaccine booking site. And exactly the point you brought up right now, I think it's an excellent one. But can we not just have 24 hours? You know, like, you know, we have, we have shoppers, drug marts, other pharmacies, other facilities. People should be able to get a vaccine if the supply is there any time of the day. You know, this is a pandemic and we're trying to get over it. And we need to find out every resource possible to make sure that as many of our population is getting vaccinated. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert as always. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
tragedy continues in India as they are uh, just undergoing a dire scenario uh, as they try to get through the third wave of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And uh, unfortunately, uh, India has topped the 200,000 dead as uh, obviously this virus uh, surge just uh, breaks their health care system. To talk more about all of this, Raji Jayaraman is with us and is the Associate Professor of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Policy, Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Raji, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, staggering numbers here coming out of India. Are there certain areas, regions that are doing better or worse than others? Uh, yes, the numbers, first of all, are just absolutely staggering in the numbers that you quoted, you know, the 200,000 uh, dead. Uh, so today, there were 361,000 reportedly infected, and we all know that these are massive underestimates. So the scale of the problem is absolutely massive. That being said, you know, in terms of your question, are there areas of India that are doing better or worse? The answer is yes. India is a massive country, Mm -hmm. and there is huge variation from state to state depending on um, how state governments have been performing while the curve was relatively flat. Uh, common denominators between those areas, regions that are doing better, those not so much? The common denominator, I really think, is a question of governance. Um, In those states where you have governments that have continued to keep their guard up while the curve was flat, that have built capacity while the curve uh, was flat, and also historically have better capacity um, in the health sector of those states that, that are doing well. And, of course, governments that have consistently sent out a message regarding the importance of what we all know by now at this stage in this pandemic, the importance of uh, social distancing. How has what's happened in the, in the areas where they've had a, a better handle on this, how is what's happening in the rest of India putting pressure on those regions? Well... Um, the thing with infectious diseases is that nobody is safe until yeah. everybody is safe. So uh, there's, you know, and that's true. What you know, when there's an emergency in India, that means we're not safe here in Canada as much as as we may try. So there's obviously a whole bunch of indirect pressure, but in terms of direct pressure, there's obviously been a call um, for regions that are less severely affected to help out in those regions that um, are severely affected by the current crisis. So, for instance, we've had uh, oxygen supplies that are extremely low in places like uh, Mumbai and Delhi that have had massive outbreaks. Um, so oxygen has been supplied in from parts of the country, such as places in the south, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, that have more capacity in terms of oxygen production. Uh, we've certainly heard that India is the world's pharmacy. Are you surprised India has found itself where it is? Well, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that India is the world's pharmacy. It is the largest uh, producer of vaccines in the world. Um, so in that sense, the productive capacity is in principle there. No, in the sense that um, it's a large country. So capacity 
in terms of you're saying pharmaceutical products at any given point in time speaks to current demand. So when there are massive upsurges in demand, the you know case of oxygen being a case in point, um, it's not terribly surprising that even if you have a large baseline capacity, it can't keep up with massive surges mm. in demand. What about vaccine and vaccine uptake there? So that's a, that's a slightly more complicated question. As I said before, India is one of the largest producers of vaccines. Actually, not one of the largest producers mm-hmm. of vaccines in the world. And it had an early tie-up with AstraZeneca, which was you know one of the winners in the early part of this race for vaccine development. So in that sense, India was actually in, in a good place in terms of vaccine development. Now, I think the problem in terms of vaccine take-up in India is that take-up was relatively slow. First of all, there are two vaccines that are widely, or I shouldn't say widely available, that's no longer true, but were widely available in India, which is a domestically produced and developed vaccine, and uh, AstraZeneca on top of that. But, you know, they started uh, coming out and being put into circulation, if you will, at a time in February in particular, where um, infection rates were at a low. So they were around, you know, at the trough around 10,000 cases a day, which is a large number for Canada, perhaps, but a tiny number in the Indian context. And so a lot of people had the feeling that, you know, India had somehow vanquished this disease, and so take-up was low, even when vaccines were, in principle, available. So how much of uh, the citizenry there have been uh, uh, have been vaccinated? Uh, One or two tiny, doses? A, a, a tiny proportion. I'm afraid I don't have the, the yeah, numbers that's okay. at mm-hmm. the top of my head. So I'm looking, actually, I'm looking at the numbers now. Uh, fully vaccinated population is 1.7 percent which is i mean look in absolute numbers we're talking about that's below that's below canada canada Canada, yeah that's 23 million people in india yeah and then that is below the percentage in canada because i think canada is is sitting at about just not quite three percent for fully vaccinated so uh are are citizens disappointed that this stuff was sold out as opposed to being used to treat its own citizens you know i i imagine that some are, but at this stage, we're talking about a disaster, mm. a disaster situation. And so I think the focus now is very much on those people that are sick. I think that uh, indignation will, will swell in time, but that's not the place India is right now. I think it's much more, you know, uh, disaster relief type situation rather than a prevention situation at this stage, although those two things should really go hand in hand. So we know that uh, the United States is sitting on a large, uh, a large uh, warehouse, I guess, of AstraZeneca waiting for approval. Canada hoping to get a piece of that. But uh, it certainly looks like a lot of that will end up going to, to India. Yes, um, which is certainly, certainly good news for India. Again, India is a very large country, so... Um, whatever comes from the U.S. is going to be very useful, but nowhere near the scale mm. of the kind of capacity India requires in order to get up to herd immunity levels. Any idea how long they will be in this predicament? Um, you know, we can try and do projections, but the 
the quick answer is this is not going to go. It's going to get worse before it gets better just because of um, how prevalent the disease is at the moment and the fact that it seems like whatever variants are out there and it's not clear exactly which variant is uh, particularly destructive, um, but infection rates are extremely high with the three main variants that are out there, the British variant B117, the Brazilian variant P1, and now the Indian variant B1617. Raji Jairaman has been with us, Associate Professor with the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto. Raji, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Well, uh, we certainly know uh, how uh, social media has affected our lives, especially during a global pandemic. Some great things. I mean, my goodness, where would we be without uh, technology and the Zoom call and all of that stuff? Um, But obviously, uh, propaganda, what is right, what is wrong, who makes that choice? Uh, Now liberals have uh, uh, unveiled a plan to regulate uh, YouTube. Uh, What does that mean to you and me? How does that change things? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst and with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Yep, doing uh, as well as can be expected. Like I know. How long have we talked about this now, Carmi? My goodness. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's talk about YouTube, because this is kind of something different other than COVID-19, although uh, I guess uh, with this pandemic, lots of uh, emphasis and attention on social media. Tell us exactly what this plan to regulate is is about and your thoughts on it. So the Canadian Heritage Committee had been holding hearings. They've been studying it for a while. It's an amendment to the Broadcasting Act. It's called Bill C-10. And basically, you know, it would allow, you know, we've been calling for uh, companies like Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, big American streaming operations who uh, do business in Canada. We, they have, they have subs- subscribers, but they don't really contribute back to it. They, they don't pay taxes here. They don't really focus on production here. It's sort of all the money goes outside. Uh, and rightfully so. A lot of people have wondered, why is that? You know, regular broadcasters are subject to CRTC regulations and have to subscribe to Canadian content rules and pay back into the Canadian cultural landscape to encourage other productions for future to sustain the economy. Um, why not Netflix? And so that's really what Bill C-10 was all about. Um, but then they started meddling with it. And they originally, there was a, uh, there was a clause that basically said, uh, you will not, you know, include things that you and I would post. So user contributed content, uh, to say YouTube or TikTok or any other platform, that would always be exempted. In other words, uh, CRTC can focus on Netflix and the big American companies, but you and I, we'd be fine. Well, Last week, they went and they pulled that exemption from it, which basically opens the door to the CRTC regulating what you and I can post online. They say they're not going to to really act on it, that Canadians shouldn't worry, that it's not their plan to haul you and I in front of a Commons committee just because we posted the wrong kind of video. But that's kind of small comfort because the door is now open, and if a future uh, government wants to change the legislation, or if somebody wants to expand the CRTC's powers, there's nothing stopping them from doing so. Welcome to 1984. 
<laughs> so, Carmi, I'm guessing that most probably don't have a problem with the Netflixes of the world contributing and, and content creation and all of that sort of thing to making sure that, that uh, the creators are, are, are getting paid and, and taxes are being collected. I, most probably don't have a, a problem with that. But as soon as you start touching individual uh, uh, users who, who are using this for whatever reason, that's where the trouble starts. Um, why go there? Why even go there considering most people who are doing it on a user level aren't really monetizing this in any way? It's the larger companies that are. I'm not quite sure why. Um, and in fact, I, I really wish, uh, you know, somebody from the Heritage Committee would weigh in uh, on why that was the case, why that last minute change was made. Uh, why anyone would ever draw a connection between holding Netflix and companies like it accountable to policing what Canadians can and cannot post online uh, when they decide to share their videos with each other. So, you know, what one has to do with the other, I simply don't know, and I really don't understand the logic, and they haven't really shared the, you know, the, the reasoning behind that decision. Um, but I think in terms of understanding how Canadians... Uh, need to be protected from government overreach going forward, this opens up a very important sort of avenue of conversation uh, about the government stepping out of its comfort zone, about the government going too far to allow the national regulator to control uh, online conversation. I don't think any of us really has an issue with doing more to rein in misinformation, online abuse, cyber-stalking. These would all fall in scope of this. But relating it to holding companies like Netflix more accountable, maybe leave that off the table for now. Leave the exemption in and maybe come up with another amendment to the the Broadcast Act later on once this first one has been taken care of. They're simply taking on too much and they're they're ensuring that everyone is going to be a little bit upset at them because of it. We know that the internet is sort of the last great frontier, other than you know what uh, Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX and, sh- and and such. So, is this, in your opinion, to get a handle on what we're posting, to get a handle on hate or or any of that? I mean, is that the reasoning for this? They didn't really um, sort of say. Uh, Stephen Gilbo, uh, who's our heritage minister, he sort of said that there were some concerns expressed by by music streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music, which would be uh, subject to uh, Bill C-10 because they are streaming platforms, that they were concerned about copyright. Uh, So, you know, for example, you and I, we might record a video at our child's uh, birthday party, and there's a a song playing in the background, but we haven't gotten the copyright release to it, so uh, it gets pulled down. So that's really what they're talking about, is protecting the rights of copyright holders and allowing the CRTC to have some oversight there. They didn't specifically talk about abuse. They didn't spe- specifically talk about cyber stalking or anything like that, misinformation, um, and which to me is a lost opportunity. What they should have done was sort of set it off to the side, deal with it appropriately on its own, not try to link it in, in some tenuous way to the need to hold big tech accountable. Uh, you know, it's apples and oranges, and quite frankly, the two of them don't belong in the same basket. It, will this get lost in the sauce during a global pandemic? I'm hoping not. And, you know, and this is a, it's a worrisome trend. You see that a lot where governments basically use the fact that we're all in the middle of this pandemic fog 
to slam through some legislation that they probably wouldn't even dare consider at any other time. And so, you know, the cynic in me says, yeah, they're probably hoping we're distracted now and that there won't be a hue and cry. But literally within minutes of this thing going live last week, the, the outcry on social media was, uh, you know, as loud as, if not louder than uh, the, the, uh, the, the headlines around the pandemic. So I think what we're seeing here is they've poked the bear. Canadians recognize it. They're not going to be distracted. They see the existential threat to freedom of expression on an open and free Internet, and they're worried, and they want the government to provide them assurances. And uh, using the pandemic as a smokescreen, probably not the Canadian government's finest hour. So what's in this for government? Why even go there now? Um, because, you know, this, the, the overarching issue of the CRTC um, being accountable for Internet-based behaviors in the same way that they've been accountable for overseeing broadcast-related behaviors and actors and entities since the beginning of broadcasting, that's been going on since the commercial Internet was a thing in the 1990s. And the CRTC for decades has essentially said, we're going to wait and see how this Internet thing plays out before we decide how we're going to regulate it. And so they've they've taken steps, obviously, to regulate the telecommunications side of it, making sure that they have oversight over uh, how telecommunications companies access spectrum and how they use it and how competition is managed in that space. But they haven't really weighed in on the content online in the same way that they've weighed in on the, the content for broadcast. There are no Canadian content rules, for example, for internet, there are for broadcast, um, and so I think it's it's reasonable that here we are, you know, coming on a generation into the era of the commercial internet. It's time for our national regulator to get with the program and to start creating frameworks that ensure fairness, that don't allow American companies to essentially scrape the Canadian economy raw and not return anything back into it. So it is time that we go there. But clearly, the government is casting way too wide a net. And as a result, it's getting Canadians pretty upset in the process. Carmi Levy, tech analyst, has been with us regulating the Internet and trying to get her done during a global pandemic. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Really appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.